Well, good morning, everyone, and um, glad to have you out this morning. We are we're continuing in uh, looking at the, the Gospel of Luke. And uh, this morning we get to the probably one of the most famous passages in uh, all of the Gospels, and uh, the one that even Charles Schultz would uh, make famous, right, as we watch every time of this year of hearing Linus walk up on stage and carrying his blanket, but then dropping, you know, the, the mic drop moment, but yet in his case it's the blanket drop moment when he says it was true about what's the true meaning of Christmas, you know, why are we here? And we get to this, this story today, and um, I, I want to first, before we, uh, we kind of talk about it, I do want to just read the passage. I, I want to just read it in its entirety, and then just try to take a few, uh, a few ideas from it. One, one major thing, that what we can look at behind, the story in a sense behind the story. Sometimes we get caught up in all of the different details, and we miss what it's actually pointing to. But in the middle of that, so we're going we're gonna to do it a little bit different today, too. Um, you've done this once before. But we're gonna, I'm going to kind of break this sermon up into two halves this morning. And I want to I kind of introduce this passage. But then we're going to, you've got the little, uh, little handouts that you got. We're going to break up into small groups again today. We're going to try that again. It's really, it seems very bright up here, more than normal. I can't see the congregation. There we go. That's better. There we go. Um, but yeah, we're going to break up into some, some groups of people. And we're going to go through the passage together and look at a passage that we're very familiar with, but maybe that we might be able to find a couple extra things in there that, we've, uh, that the Lord can bless us with this morning. Does that sound good? And then I'll come back up and I'll finish out uh, with the sermon to just give us the, the big idea of what is God doing in and through this story. So let, let's read along with me. And it'll be up here on the, the screen as well. But we'll be Luke chapter 2. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire for taxes. And there was the first registration taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to be registered. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. Because, or to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was the, of the house and a lineage of David. He went to be registered with Mary, who was promised in marriage to him, and who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Now there were shepherds nearby living out in the field, keeping guard over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were absolutely terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Listen carefully, for I proclaim to you good news that brings great joy to all of the people. Today, your Savior is born in the city of David. He is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly a vast heavenly army appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. 
And when the angels had left them and they went back to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see the things that have taken place that the Lord has made known to us. And so they hurried off and located Mary and Joseph and they found the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw him, they related what had been told them about this child and all who heard it were astonished at what the shepherds had said. But Mary, she treasured up all of these words, pondering in her heart what they meant, what they might mean. And so the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, for they had all had heard and seen, and everything was just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. You know, when we, when we get into this time of the year, right, uh, this, this is one of those passages, this is that time of the year that we hear probably the beginnings of the greatest story ever told. We see it in plays, we see it in displays on our mantelpieces, in our front yards often, sometimes at courthouses, on Christmas cards, right? They're, this is everywhere. This story is everywhere at this time of the year. But I think quite often when you look at those pictures of what's going on, in the remembering of the story, well, much of what's shown is unfortunately not what actually occurred, is it? And before you go home and you start like literally taking most of your manger and throwing it out, right? You know, your manger scene and throwing it out. There's no need into that. I've actually known people that have done that. They've, they've picked through and thrown out the parts that weren't there. They don't need to do that. Enjoy your manger scene as you paid for it. Um, but what I do want to say, in the remembering, in the, the memoring, we can get to sometimes misremember about what actually happens in that story. And these things, often I find they can detract us from the real story that's going on in the passage. Real quick, I wanted to, not to be the killjoy, but I want to hit like five real quick things that we sometimes misremember that are actually happening there. And then I want to talk about one other thing that actually did happen but unfortunately, masks often of what the true story is behind it. Let's look at this. I, I want to look at these five things. The Christmas story, I call these the Christmas story misrememberings. Now, and I, I hate to be that guy, but sometimes we need to be that person. We just, you know, that's how it goes. First thing, I'm sorry, but believe it or not, there was no Christmas star the night that Jesus was born. All right? There was no star at his birth. It, but was there a star? There was a star. But if you read Matthew chapter 2, actually, when does this star come? It's, no, it's not earlier. It's later, actually. It's not until after Jesus is born that this star appears. Sometime after that the wise men are drawn from where they're coming from. They come in and they meet Herod. And then they make their way. The star reappears, actually. And they make their way up to Bethlehem. And it's interesting, it's even potentially up to two years later. How do we know that it might be actually almost two years after Jesus' birth? What has Herod ordered done? All the boys that are two and under to die, just to be safe, maybe. So it seems that Jesus might have been there for a while before the star appeared. Interesting. How about this? The wise men themselves. How many wise men were there? There were three, right? Three wise men. Do you know that the passage actually says nothing about the number of wise men? It just says that there were wise men. Interestingly, the Eastern Orthodox Church actually thinks that there's 12 to coincide maybe with the ideas of 12 tribes, 12 disciples, things like that. But it doesn't say. only thing that says there's three of are what? The gifts. And what do we do? We assume things that are in there. Because there's three gifts, there must be three of them, right? 
Sorry, we don't know how many wise men there were. It doesn't say. How about this? This is, one of my, this is probably my favorite. Anybody know of, you've seen in the Christmas plays, the kids pageants, that the heartless innkeeper, right? I know there's a typo up there. I know there's an Ann. It's a heartless innkeeper. A heartless, there's no, there, unfortunately, there's no heartless innkeeper. There's no guy that they came into. I think we imagine it's like they're, they're driving along in the cart and get there about, pulling about 2 a.m. to Bethlehem, right? And everybody's asleep and the only place there is, it's the Red Roof Inn, right? And they got to come in. The guy's like, I'm sorry, I'm filled up. And, but I got, you know, you, no, actually, there's no mention of any innkeeper. There is no evil innkeeper that's going to keep them out. It sounds good, but it doesn't happen. Because actually, believe it or not, the next one, there was, I, the, the idea that there's no room for them at the inn, the reality is, is actually there's probably no inn to even be there for the innkeeper to reject them. It's interesting, if you actually go back and look at the words that are used, it, it comes largely because of King James English, right? We see it's been there for 400 years, 500 years almost now, that we've, we, it just is kind of one of those things that are just stuck in our mindset that they kind of come in. The word that, that Luke uses there actually is a vastly different word than what he uses later in Luke, whenever it goes to the Good Samaritan, you know, he, he brings the guy in and he puts him in an inn and gives the innkeeper, there is an innkeeper there, he gives him money. It's a very different word. Actually, believe it or not, what's going on here, and, and I, you, you can see it in any, any translation. I've only seen one translation. It's the, uh, I think it's the Christian Standard Version or something that has it this way, and I actually read it this way, is that there's no place for them in the guest room. Reality is the word used there is probably when Mary and Joseph come in, the way you would do it, you didn't stay at, there were no red roof inns, okay? You didn't stay. Family didn't stay. There were inns, but those were the places for passers-by, the, the crooks, things like that. That's the reason why this, the Samaritan gives the extra money to protect the guy. Hey, take care of him in case they, you know, they kill him because he, that's, or they rob him or things like that if he had anything left. But actually what would happen in a Jewish family is you would bring them into your home. Any family that would come in, you'd bring them into your home. Well, typically you put them where? In your guest room. You'd have an extra little side room off. But what had happened in this, this census everybody's in town. So there's likely actually no room in the guest room, so where are they going to be? They're actually in, the word that's used there is about the main room in the house. And you'd have like this little main room in your house, and above it you'd have an upper room where you would eat, where you'd hang out, the family things. What happened in that, that main room? You'd cook your meals, but also what hung out there at night? Your animals, the animals that you cared for, they weren't out in a barn somewhere, okay? They weren't somewhere else. They were actually in your house. You kept them in there in that common room. There's probably no room for Mary and Joseph in the guest room, so they're in there with where all the animals are. So it actually kind of changes the mindset of thinking that Jesus, and this goes with the fifth one, Jesus was not born in a barn, okay? Barns didn't come along until more you know, Western ideas and England, things like that. When you see the little, the barn, the stable with all the animals in it and the trough, that didn't exist in these times. And he wasn't born in a cave. He wasn't in some type of stable. He was in the family home. Yet, he was in there, crowded, but even on that first Christmas morning, he's right there with family. It's a lowly beginning, but he's with family. He's with those who actually care about him. But he does in the, the so these are all the, the five things that maybe quite aren't true, but there is one thing that's probably the most common thing in all of the, the, the story about Jesus that uh, I, th I think 
is a thing. What is that? Whenever it comes to the story about Jesus, what's the big thing that shows up that we always make sure that it's known about his birth? There's a manger, right? There is a manger in this story. This is probably the one recognized thing that goes throughout the story, and you see it here that actually is a part of this. But what is it? What is this manger? Let me ask you a question. Uh, have you ever, like, have you ever had a dog? Anybody ever had a dog in here? Have you ever tried to get a dog to notice something? Have you ever done this? You're like, hey, boy or girl, like, look over there. Like, go after that or go after this thing or try to point them to something. Hey, hey, come here, eat this thing. What? But notice when you do that, when you point something to a dog, what do they often look at? They don't look at the thing that you're wanting to look at. They, they look at your finger. If you want the dog to actually get to the thing that you wanted to get to, you almost have to put your finger right where, where the thing is. And then they see it. We did this with my dog all the time and his, uh, his medicines. You go, go take the medicine. He just look at you. Take that medicine. He look at your finger. You had to put your finger all the way down there. Oh, there it is. It, you know, it's as frustrating as it is sometimes. You're like, just look where I want you to look, right? Same thing with our kids sometimes, right? I think they're like, look over there. I want you to... But as frustrating as it is for a dog, I think it's a good illustration of a natural mistake that we often make from time to time. We all know about the manger. We all look at the manger. We have them in our places and we, we put all that. But the problem is, is... I, you know, and it's probably the most famous feeding trough of all time. It's not even a something sense like this. It's more probably of a feeding trough where the animals actually ate. They put their food in there. But I think what do we do? When we concentrate on the manger, what happens is we forget why it was mentioned in the first place. It's kind of like the dog that's looking at the finger rather than the object that it's supposed to be looking at. And so the question is, why is it even mentioned? Notice it's mentioned three times in this story. It has something to do with this story. The manger does, but why is it mentioned? Why? Because it's supposed to be a what to the shepherds? A sign. The shepherds are given a sign about who? The baby. Now, it's interesting, thinking about signs... Go back to the chapter. Who asked for a sign? Zechariah, right? How do I know that this thing is true? Are signs a good thing? Or does God give signs in order to know that something's going to be true? What his word says or what he says through his messengers are true. Yes, he does. He gives these shepherds a sign that is going to point to what is inside of it. A sign that showed them what to look for and a sign that showed them that the angel knew what he was talking about when he told them what was going to happen. And I think it's a cool story. I mean, I think there's a cool aspect to this, too. I mean, just even this sense of there's another human aspect. We keep seeing this over and over. There's this human aspect. you imagine being a mother who has your firstborn child, a young mother, firstborn child, and the place is so crowded that, this, you know, that we're staying in the common room. We don't really have a bed. We don't have anywhere to stay. And even worse, my own baby has to, I have to what? Clear out the feeding trough from the animals, maybe kick them away a little bit so I can lay him down inside the manger. And I think about just the lowliness and the humility of one that was told of G to Mary that this was going to be the son of the Most High. And now here he is having to, she has to lay him in a simple feeding trough. But I think the reason Luke mentions it more than just a human aspect story, but it's because it's important in giving the shepherds their instructions. 
Why is it important? Because it's the shepherds who were told who this child was, right? Who did, G, who did, the, who did God come to to say who, these, who this child was going to be? To the lowly, to the people that were out away from everybody most of the time, probably to the socially awkward a little bit. When you're only hanging out with animals all day and maybe one or two other people, you get a little socially awkward. You'd think that if the, this person of who it's said about, this baby, who should you or who would we go to today to say that something's happened? We would go to the people that have the chance to get the message out the fastest, to the high, to the rich, to the powerful, to the people that have influence, to the pastors, to the, 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 the leaders. But it's God who goes to the shepherd. And what are they told? They're told that this child is what? He is going, to you is born a savior. To you is born your Messiah, your Christ, the one who is the anointed one. To you is born the Lord. The manger itself isn't important. But it is, it's the finger, the manger is the finger pointing to the identity and task of the baby that's lying in it. And so you just imagine, imagine being Mary and Joseph in this, this case, and that the shepherds, be, they're summoned from their fields, kind of like King David was himself, to be brought in, to be anointed, right, as king. These shepherds are brought in to the city of David, and they're made privy to news that up until this point has pretty much only been a silent thing between Mary and Joseph, right? And now all of a sudden they show up knowing that you're, you're, you have a baby and that your baby is something special. They hear it from this unexpected source, and I think it's going to have extra confirmation for them of what's only been their secret up to this point. You see that this story is unfolding. It's, time, it's step by step, and I think it's interesting. As they're said, what's said to Mary, what is it said? You know, I love that. You see this, I see this debate on, uh, on um, social media. I mean, Mary, did you know, right? You know the song, right? Mary, did you know? And I I love the debate. Like, did Mary know? Of course she did. She had chapter one, right? Chapter one of Luke. But it's interesting. Notice how Mary, every time something happens with her and happens with the baby, what does it say about her? It says she ponders in them in her heart. Look at what it says here. She treasured these words, pondering in her heart what they might mean. I don't think Mary fully knew. I don't think she fully understood what was going on. She knew some, but I don't think she fully knew. But here is another sign, not only to the shepherds to see in the manger, but to Mary and Joseph themselves, that what is said is true. God, if his word has said it, he will confirm it, even in supernatural means. Amen? What I want to do, I want to break here for a second. I want to break for a moment. You've got your little, you've got your, your uh, handout questions. I want you to find just a small group, whether it be not more than just your wife or more than just your husband. That's not a small group, okay? At least one other person. Get together. We're going to take about 15 minutes. And I want you to look at the passage here. You've got questions. I want you to go through these and talk through some things. I want to see some things more about the shepherds themselves, about what is it their response? What is it that, why is it that God came to them? And I want us to build something from that. And we'll come back together in about 15 minutes and we'll wrap this up a little bit. Does that sound good? Okay, let's do that. Go ahead and I want you to break out. You know, and it's interesting. I think we need to assume about these shepherds that they would know what these terms are, right? What were the three terms that were said about Jesus? He is going to be, he has been born. He is your savior, 
Messiah or Christ and Lord, right? You know, I would think that these shepherds would know what these roles are, what they are to do. And Luke, just in case we might not know what it is, right, he reminds us at the beginning of this passage about the kurios, the Lord at the time, right? Who is the Lord? Caesar Augustus, right? You know, it's interesting, you know, and he's at the height of his power. If you know anything about Caesar Augustus, he is the one, actually, he is the the adopted son of Julius Caesar. We all know Julius Caesar, right? Et tu brute, uh, although that probably didn't happen. Et tu brute, right? He fought against, anybody know who he fought against to win his power? Another famous one, Mark Anthony, right? He won the battle, Mark Anthony, and he was the first Caesar that took control during a time of war, but then didn't what? Anybody remember? Didn't relent it back to the republic. He's the one that changed Rome from a republic to an empire. He's the one that, that took hold and took power. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who posthumously, he actually quote, quoted about Julius Caesar. He called him a god. He called him divine. So what does that make Caesar Augustus? If his father is a god, then that makes him the Son of God. Interesting, right? He's also, he, he went out, we see he have writings, he's the one that went out preaching and having heralds go out to give good news to, interestingly, evangelize, where we get the word, that he had brought justice and peace to the world. Interesting, right? Not only that, but people said about Augustus in poems and writings that we've found, you know what they called him? The Savior of the world. They called him that he is the true king who has brought peace to the whole world. Interesting, isn't it? This was said about Caesar Augustus. But during this time, Caesar Augustus, who has all the power, all of the authority and everything, and God comes into these, in the form of angels to these lowly shepherds and tells them that somewhere far east of Rome, far away from where Caesar is Lord, in this small, insignificant town, a boy is born that within a generation would be called by his followers what? The Son of God. He is called here the Savior. They would call him their Lord. And they would say about him that his arrival brought true justice and true peace to the world. And it's funny, this emperor who thinks he has so much power, he decides to take a census at this time. But yet this census brings this family and this boy to a small town in in Judah to Bethlehem, which was the town that who was born in famously? David, who was the king of the Jews. This boy is going to be linked to King David himself. And, and Luke is making clear in this passage, very clearly this, the big idea is that the birth of this little boy in this manger is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. That these two things are going to clash. They are going to come in And the funny thing is, is Augustus in his lifetime never heard about this man named Jesus of Nazareth. Nowhere in his lifetime would he have ever heard of this boy. Yet, within a century's time, his successors are trying their hardest to do what? Rid their empire of this man's followers. 
Within three centuries, the emperor himself has become what? Has called himself what? A Christian, a follower of Christ. And it's interesting that this little boy, when these shepherds, they came, if you notice, it says they hurried off. When they heard this, right, they said, let us come to Bethlehem, see this thing that has taken place that the Lord made known to us. They hurried off and located Mary and Joseph, and they found the baby where? Exactly where the angels said he would be. That is their sign. And when they saw the child in the manger, they said what? They related what they had been told about this child. They said to everybody in the family and everybody that would listen, this baby, I mean, it was like when they saw it, it's the confirmation that this is true. Everything that was said was true, even to Mary and Joseph to go, I didn't know this. And all who heard it were astonished at what they had said, right? And they returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. I love that everything was just as they had been told. When you see the manger, when you drive around and you see it in a yard, when you see it out on a, on a Christmas card, when you see it on your mantelpiece, don't merely stop and look at the crib. See what the crib is pointing to. Look where the finger is pointing. Don't get stuck on the finger, but look where it's pointing to. And it's this, is that that baby that's lying there in this moment has already been spoken of as the true king over all of creation. And the rest of Luke's story from this point on is just merely both in his gospel and in his follow-up, Luke part two, Return of the Jedi. Now, Luke part two is the book of Acts, which points to the reality of how Jesus is going to what? Come into his kingdom. What his kingdom will look like and how it will be far greater than Caesar Augustus, who is mentioned in passing, who will go to the grave and never come back. Yet this one will come, go to the grave, and yet return victorious. Let us remember at this time of the year, at every Christmas season, that the true king has come and his name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's why we're here. Let's pray.